Well, faith, I want to say this morning, might be in need of saving. Now, I'm not referring to the decline of religious involvement in the West or something big like the death of morality itself. I'm actually just talking about the word faith. The word faith needs to be rescued from its current usage. Currently, uh, this week maybe even, you might hear faith spoken of in relation to a deep-seated wish or desire that you're hoping and strongly believing might be met. We say things like, I've got faith in my team that this will be a winning season. Or, or faith, perhaps, used as a descriptor on the news to tell you that it was a bunch of faith-based organizations that attended that protest. Faith is also something that can be lost through betrayal or circumstance. So we say, the, the uptick in violent crime in my neighborhood has caused me to lose my faith in humanity. See, faith for a post-Christian city like Vancouver is surprisingly spoken of quite a bit, referenced fairly often. The problem, however, is that none of these usages have any or little familial resemblance to the word faith that we find in our Bibles. And this, we'll see, is a big problem because the Christian is to live by faith. In fact, faith itself, as John will tell us this morning, is the very path we walk on if we are to have victory in this life. So to see what I'm talking about, I want us to look at 1 John 5, verses 1 to 5, and examine three very foundational things about faith. Those things will come up on the screen now. The first is this. I want us to see the nature of faith. The nature of faith. The second thing I want us to see is the obedience of faith. And then thirdly and finally, we'll hit the crescendo where we encounter the victory or the conquering of faith. So let's begin. If we're going to talk about faith today, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your cultural conceptions of faith, roll them up in a ball, put gasoline on that ball, and light it on fire. I want you to burn it up. And I want us to start from God's word and begin there building our foundation as to what faith is. And to do that, I want us to leave 1 John for a moment and go to the letter to the Hebrews. See, in Hebrews 11, helpfully, we find there the author give us a definition of faith. And there he writes this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The first word we need help in understanding the nature of biblical faith is this word that we find here in Hebrews 11, verse 1, assurance. Or, or, or confidence. Uh, the Greek word here, while it can mean a good deal many of things, at its heart, this word refers to something that is substantive or solid. It's firm. It's substantive or solid. Uh, the Bible scholar George Guthrie, he illustrates this word in this way. He says when he was a kid, uh, one day him and his brother went out to play on the treehouse 
that his grandfather was in the process of constructing. And so they were playing on this treehouse. I was still in the middle of construction. And they looked and they saw, oh, grandfather has built for us a pirate plank. What a loving, good grandfather he is. Now, of course, grandfather had not built for George and his brother a pirate plank. The board was, in fact, just sitting there. It was not nailed down. And George's brother fell 12 feet to the ground. The board, you see, was not solid. It should not have been trusted. And I think many of us consider faith in this way, don't we? Our language in our culture betrays us. We say things like, we're about to take, what? A leap of faith, right? Our culture would say that it was an act of faith that led George's brother to try out that pirate plank. But that is not, and we have to see this, that is not the nature of biblical faith. Biblical faith is not shutting our eyes and stepping off into nothingness. Uh, If you're old enough to remember the Indiana Jones movies and The Last Crusade, you have, of course, Indiana Jones. He's about to step out into the abyss and the man is dying and he's urging him to have faith, right? And in Indiana Jones, he stands at the precipice and there's nothing there. He can't see anything. He's like, okay, have faith, have faith. And he steps out and there's an invisible walkway, right? He took the leap of faith in the last crusade. But biblical faith is not like what Indiana Jones teaches us. I want to be clear here. The Bible is a better teacher than Harrison Ford on this subject. But if it's not a leap then, what is the substantive thing? Or rather, who is the solid person on whom we put our faith? And this is the second thing we need to see about the nature of biblical faith. The object of faith is God himself. It's God's very character. Not just a vague notion of God, but God as he has revealed himself in his word, in history, and chiefly, most clearly, in sending his son Jesus who accomplished our salvation. Which means, and this is a really important concept to wrap our heads around, Christian, follower of Jesus on this call, good morning. It's good to see you. You do not have faith in your faith. Let me say that again. You do not have faith in your faith, the strength or the might or the degree of your faith. It can be a scary thing, and I felt this recently, to measure our faith by the strength of our faith. I don't know about you, but there have been plenty of times in this past season where if my faith was in my faith, I would have despaired. No, my faith, your faith, if it is biblical faith, is located outside of yourself. It is fixed on the invisible God who has accomplished our salvation. And so John begins our text this morning. Listen, John says that before we acted, God did. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, everyone who trusts, has faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the rescuer. What's that the result of? What's that the fruit of? John tells us, well, they've been born of God. 
God's already acted in their life, giving them the new birth. In other words, our faith has not come about in beginning, in origin, through study or fresh insight or because you or me took a leap in a chasm. No, it has come because God has invaded our hearts by the Holy Spirit, causing us to be born again and confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, is the King, is who he says he is. Biblical faith has its origins in God. And because God is the origin of biblical faith, it likewise has God as its object. And if God is the origin and object of our faith, both the origin and object, biblical faith is unlike any other thing, any other person that we can put our trust in. See, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not this morning, we have all put our faith or our trust somewhere. We've all done it. I've done it. You've done it. For most of us, living where we do, we've put our faith, perhaps unbeknownst to us, in a stable economy. We put our faith in our health. Or perhaps we put our faith in the degrees we have that give us approval that surely we've done something right in this life. Or we put our faith in our family. And can I just tell you something? None of those boards are nailed down. They're all pirate planks. None of those boards are nailed down. When you entrust all of yourself to Jesus, and you believe Jesus to be the Christ who died on the cross for your sins and rose for your salvation, you will find that for the first time in your life, you are standing on solid ground. You are standing on a firm foundation. Friends, this is the rock-solid nature of biblical faith. And in order for this biblical faith to be shown to be genuine, it must we now see, John will force us to see it, we must manifest this faith in obedience. Look at point number two with me. The obedience of faith. We pick it, ha- we, we pick it up, rather, in the second half of verse one. If you have your Bible, John, uh, 1 John 5, verse one, second half, where John says, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And then John says, and we'll get to this, his commandments are not burdensome. There's a circular nature in which John is speaking, not just in this letter, but in these very verses in particular. He's, he's, he's circling around things over and over and over again. The end of verse 1 essentially tells us those who've been fathered by God will love their siblings who God has also fathered. Does that make sense? Those who've been fathered by God will love their brother and sister who God also fathered, who he gave spiritual life to. Again, we see the command to love the church. This is not new. But then in verse 2, look at your Bibles. 
in verse 2, he says something which sounds a bit strange. See, we expect him to say, by this we know that we love God, when we love the children of God. We expect him to say that for the 40th time in this very short letter. But instead he says this, look at your Bibles. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. And then, immediately afterward, John goes back to the expected order of things. Look at verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Now, now what are we to make of this circular way that John speaks this morning? I think we can say two things, probably more. But the first thing is this. Loving others and loving God And this is not new, but we have to hear it again. This cannot exist. These two things cannot exist apart from one another. See, in Matthew 22, Jesus gives us the two great commandments, right? Love God and love your neighbor. And these two great commandments, I want to say, I want us to see that they relate to one another like an engine relates to wheels on a car. Now, we can think of the engine being love for God. Love begins with God pouring into our hearts his love for us, and we in turn love him, right? We saw that last week. Love is not that we first loved God, but God first loved us. And so God starts the engine of love in our life. The engine begins to rev, right? The pistons begin to fire. But an engine on its own is no good. I know very little about cars, but I know that that is not good. To be a car, you need to have wheels. You have to go somewhere. The engine must propel the wheels forward. Those wheels, as it were, that's our obedience. That's our living it out. And if that car metaphor was just very, very confusing to you and not helpful at all, let me quote someone smarter than me who said it much more succinctly. Jerry Bridges, the late Jerry Bridges, said it like this. Love provides the motive for obeying the commands of the law. But the law provides specific direction for exercising love. Again, the law here is understood in Jesus' fulfillment of it. How Jesus interprets and it fulfills the law. And we saw this in our Sermon on the Mount series. But this should lead us to say, secondly, how we are to love and this is so important in our day and age, how we are to love is defined by Jesus' commandments. Now, before you tune out, because I said the word commandments, and it's 2021, and commandments makes you think of Charlton Heston and the the Ten Commandments movie. Again, maybe that's uh, before your time. But let me suggest something very obvious about this word commandments, about commandments in general. We all follow commandments. Every single person on this call follows commandments. Whether you're a Christian or not, you live your life according to commandments. If you're a Jordan Peterson fan, right, you had 12 rules for life, and now, here you go, you got 12 more rules for life with his latest book. There are some more commandments. If you're an environmentalist, right, you have green pieces Climate manifesto. There are some commandments therein. It doesn't matter if you're a conservative, a liberal, a libertarian, a socialist, a Democrat, a Republican. It doesn't matter. 
The question is not to have commandments or not to have commandments. The question is this. Are those commandments burdensome? Let me say that again. The question is not yes commandments or no commandments. It's this. Are those commandments burdensome? The word translated burdensome in our text also could be read as weighing us down, severe, or, or simply heavy. Jesus uses this word in Matthew 23 when he's talking about the Pharisees there. And one of the things that Jesus condemns the Pharisees for is for their incessant creation of new and varied laws, new and varied commandments. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens. Same word as our text today. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Phariseeism did not die in the first century. Phariseeism is alive and well today. And I was, I was praying through how to talk about this. I just thought I would be honest here. I am so, so tired of the judgmentalism that exists in the church, particularly among people of my generation, particularly among other millennials just like me. I follow this leader because this other one clearly doesn't get it. I go to this church because they're not contemplative enough or too contemplative. We don't want to wear a burden ourselves, but oh, we're eager to place impossible burdens on church leaders, on other Christians, and we sneer at those who disagree with us. And it's demonic. It's Phariseeism. It will lead to death. And here's what will happen. This is a warning. If you continue down this path, you will find yourself all alone. All alone. Because everyone around you was crushed by the weight of your commandments. And eventually, you yourself will crumble under the weight of your commands. Please hear my plea this morning. Francis Schaeffer gives this very good illustration where he envisions a world where each baby is born with a, a tape recorder around their neck. Now, Francis Schaeffer was living uh, in a different generation. Perhaps that's gone digital if you want to update the illustration. But let's go with me here. A tape recorder is born around their neck. And the tape recorder would turn on each time a person made a moral judgment about someone else. And over the course of a lifetime, you can imagine, thousands upon thousands of moral judgments would be made. And eventually, the baby grows old and dies. And that person, they find themselves before the father. And the father doesn't even need to condemn that person on the basis of his righteousness, on the basis of his own moral judgment. He will simply press play on the tape recorder and the man or the woman will be sentenced to death by their own judgmentalism, by their own impossible-to-bear standard. 
Hear the liberating news John brings us this morning. He says in verse 3, and his, that's Jesus, his commandments are not burdensome. They're not heavy. They won't crush us. Why are Jesus' commands and his commands alone not burdensome? And John Piper writes this, what you desire to do with your whole heart is not burdensome to do. This, this past week, I have to confess, I was visiting a friend outside and it was socially distant and we had, you know, it, it, all the asterisks. And I don't remember what the context was, but I remember saying something like this. It would be so much easier just to live however we wanted. And the comments sounded wrong at the time and as I was saying it, and it sounds even more wrong today in view of this. See, we should not deny that the obedience to which John and Jesus refer to is cruciform. It involves putting to death my fleshly desires. This obedience means going against worldly ways of thinking. This obedience means opposing the devil himself. It will hurt. It will be painful. But the death we feel in the Christian life is not the death that comes with being crushed as Jesus adds more burdens on our backs. No. The pain of obedience is the final cry of the old self being crucified. That which we once love being ripped from our very selves. If you're a fan of Narnia, think of Eustace and Aslan ripping the scales off of Eustace, the dragon. That's the pain we feel. It's the pain of obedience in that way. We should never then confuse the Spirit's work in making me and you more like Jesus with the burdensome, legalistic, pharisaical commands that this world will try to hoist upon you and put upon you. Instead, we should join our voice with the voice of the Psalms, where we read over and over again things like this. Psalm 40, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Look at Psalm 1, 1 to 2. Blessed, happy is the man who walks, not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Listen, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. For good measure, one more. Psalm 112, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Blessed or happy is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Saving faith, biblical faith, must be expressed in obedience to Jesus' commands. And the good news is, in Christ, these commands become our delight, become our joy. If I can just make one very, very small point on this second point here before we go to our third and final point, none of what I've just said matters if you don't know the commands of Jesus. So here's what we've done. 
In the liturgy, there is a link to a free ebook by John Piper called What Jesus Demands from the World. And in that book, Piper unpacks uh, the commands of Jesus as he finds them in the gospel and he applies them. I would encourage you, if you're wondering right now, what are these commands? No excuse. Download the book, read it. We'd love to have a conversation with you. Point number three, last point. We have the nature of faith, the obedience of faith, and now thirdly and finally, the victory of faith. Read these verses with me. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the crescendo of our text. We should read these verses with a sense of celebration, of a crowd welcoming in a conquering hero, that that word overcome and conquer are used interchangeably in the New Testament. It's the same word in the Greek. Jesus has conquered. Jesus is the conquering one. And if we can put it all together, having been fathered by God, we put our faith that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And in doing so, the world loses its grip on us which means, Christian, this morning, the world has no hold on you. No hold on you. See, John has already described in chapter 2 of this letter what it is to be enslaved by this world. He said this earlier. Do you remember? For all that is in this world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. We have victory over these things because Jesus first had victory over these things. In John 16, 33, Jesus tells a group of fearful, anxious, maybe even despairing disciples these comforting words. He says this, I have said these things to you. He said some hard things that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Because Jesus has conquered, we can conquer in Christ. And the sin which once held us down, the shackles that once enslaved us are now broken in Christ. Jesus the conqueror has given us his conquering spirit, that we might by faith no longer be subject to the evil of this world, both the evil within and the evil without. And even our greatest enemy, death, our greatest enemy, death, is overcome by the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. I want to say this here. No one else can say that. No other teacher no other prophet, no other influencer can say what Jesus says. Scholar Karen Jobes, she writes this, and we'll close here. There may be many self-help gurus who write and speak about how to live a better life. And some of what they might say 
may be helpful and worthwhile. But listen to what Job writes. But what is of the world cannot give us victory over the world. What is of the world cannot give us victory over the world. Without trust in Christ, who came into the world from God, even the most successful life is swallowed up in the defeat of death. There is no one like Jesus. There is no one like Jesus. Jesus who came from outside our world, outside our sin, outside our brokenness, and took it on in its full force. Jesus, who resurrected from the dead, conquered the grave. And Jesus, who gives us his spirit, that we might, by faith, live the abundant life that has overcome the world. Again, I want to make this very simple plea to you this morning. Put your faith in Jesus. And if you put your faith in Jesus, you stand on solid ground. You learn to delight in the will of the Father. And you will, now and forever, overcome. Let's pray. Father, what to say in view of your word? What to say in view of your promises? Other than this, we receive what you have spoken by faith. And we choose to believe you. We're so thankful that this is not a leap of faith like an Indiana Jones, but that this is faith rooted and grounded in your very nature, in your very character. And so I thank you this morning that if we're in your son Jesus, we stand on solid ground. I pray as we respond now that you lead us and guide us as a church by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.